Yes, so what to make of the events of this past week and a half? What to make of the events on election night that happened in New Jersey, in Virginia, and other places around the country? What to make of what's going on in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse? What to make of these challenges to the vaccine mandates? There's just so much to speak about and so many things that people are being given false information on, skewed information on, so we propose to straighten it all out here in the next few minutes. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can either use your native podcast app, just go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, depending which device you use, and search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and subscribe. In the alternative, if you prefer a third-party podcast aggregator app, you can simply search out the Podbean app in either of those two aforementioned stores, download it, and subscribe there. Regardless of which way you choose to do it, you will be able to leave reviews, comments, and so forth, and you'll be notified whenever a new show is uploaded. Uh, First off, I'd like to comment briefly about this trial going on in Wisconsin uh, of Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse is a 17-year-old boy whom you know was accused of shooting and killing two people and wounding a third uh, in these riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, the prosecution has tried to make much of the fact that deadly force cannot be used to protect uh, property, and that's generally an accepted uh, precept of laws in this country. But, you know, rioting is out of control, and rioting quickly escalates um, and quickly becomes something more um, than just destruction of property. You have arson, you have people present, uh, you have anarchy, and anarchy is something that a civil society should not permit. And when you have riots and you have the National Guard brought in to suppress riots, you find that a host of levels of force or use of levels of force that might be considered unacceptable in the normal course of law enforcement affairs suddenly becomes acceptable um, under conditions like that, where you have total anarchy and a total breakdown of society. Now, The prosecution called a number of witnesses to try to make their case against Rittenhouse. They tried to impeach his credibility by looking at statements he made on other occasions when he had no gun in his hand, and uh, the judge was pretty quick to slap down the prosecutor and really actually lectured him. I watched it, saying, don't get brazen with me. I mean, we all know that any of us make statements that we don't really mean. You say, uh, you tell your son, uh, you touch that thing, I'm going to brain you, or I'm going to kill you. You don't really mean it. It's just These are just statements you make. And so the judge had ruled in pretrial motions about what could be spoken about and what couldn't be spoken about, and for the prosecutor to make those uh, attempts to introduce those things without informing the court first was really a stupid move on his part and just pissed off the judge. But many of these witnesses that they called... Um, in the furtherance of their case, it backfired. Uh, It says here, um, I'll just give you a couple of of cases here. Ryan Balk was a military veteran 
He was carrying an AR-15 rifle that night, and he was patrolling with Rittenhouse, and he told the jurors how Rosenbaum, one of the fellows that was killed by uh, Rittenhouse, made ominous threats with an earshot of Rittenhouse. If I catch any of you guys alone tonight, I'm going to effing kill you, he recalled Rosenbaum shouting. Now, you can try and discredit that testimony on the grounds that he was a fellow that was patrolling along with Rittenhouse. But another witness was one of the videographers, a fellow by the name of Richard McGinnis. And he gave a description of Rosenbaum as chasing Rittenhouse and lunging for Rittenhouse's gun. When the prosecutor pressed McGinnis to concede that he didn't know what Rosenbaum's intent was, McGinnis had a pointed and damaging answer. Well, McGinnis promptly replied, I'm reading from this article. He said, fuck you, and then he reached for the weapon. So I would think that's a pretty good indication of what he intended to do if he got a hold of the weapon. Um, quote, if lunging for a gun is not a threatening action that would put Rittenhouse in fear for his life, I'm not sure what would be. This was the comment of a Chicago-based criminal defense attorney asked to comment on what he thought of that testimony. Uh, McGinnis, the witness, also test, uh, described Rittenhouse as appearing to do all he could to flee and even shouting friendly, friendly, friendly at Rosenbaum to convey that he meant no harm. There's a lot of these um, sort of inconsistencies. But, you know, one fellow was shot by Rittenhouse because he tried to hit him in the head with a skateboard. Now, most people don't think of a skateboard as a weapon. I see these lunatics in New York City all the time where I live in Manhattan with skateboards. You get hit up upside the head with a skateboard, you could uh, get a concussion, you could die. But let's talk a little bit more about this Mr. Rosenbaum character that everyone seems to want to portray as a big victim, Joseph Rosenbaum. First of all, he looks like a nut. Um, or should I say he looked like a nut? He doesn't look like anything now. Um, Joseph Rosenbaum, and he's a lot of film of him acting irrationally and threatening people, saying he wants to kill people. Um, there's evidence that he was bipolar, he was a nut. But whatever reason, none of these things are Kyle Rittenhouse's fault. But let's talk a little something else about Rosenbaum, in case you didn't know. Before your heart bleeds too much for this chap, understand that he was a sex offender. And he's not simply a one-time sex offender, you know, a mistake, uh, made love to a lovely girl who looked like she was 25 when she was only 16, you know, statutory rape. No. Joseph Rosenbaum was a sex offender, as confirmed by documents from Arizona, that he was charged by a grand jury with 11 counts of child molestation and inappropriate sexual activity around children, including anal rape. His victims were five boys, not one, five, ages 9 to 11 years old. No mistaken identity there. No 25-year-old, no... Uh, 15 or 16-year-old girl with a lot of makeup looking 25, well, you could say, hey, I understand how you can make that mistake. No such thing. Nine to 11-year-old boys. The Wisconsin website right now obtained his entire file regarding the case. Now, because of privacy issues, they can't show 
victims' names. I can only show the criminal complaint with the names redacted. But this guy is a serial, serial child rapist. And this is the guy that we're bleeding about. I think Rosenbaum, I think uh, Rittenhouse did society a favor uh, when he iced this guy, even though he may not have known it at the time. But uh, from everything I've seen, commentary of experts that have watched the trial, from everything I've seen about the trial and, and um, viewed myself, I would say that Rittenhouse is probably going to be acquitted. I don't know how it's going to play out now that the judge has allowed the jury to consider lesser charges, but I don't think he's going to jail uh, for murder. So uh, I think that's, that's a done deal. However, the governor of Wisconsin has now activated the National Guard in case there are protests uh, in the wake of the jury on either side. The National Guard is going to stand by to help local law enforcement if it's required. But let's go on to some other things that I wanted to uh, cover. I wanted to cover the election. Now, Pennsylvania was a pivotal election, um, a pivotal state in the election back in 2016, and it was pivotal this year, too. Now, there's a woman named Selena Zito who did extensive research prior to the 2016 election. I recall this. She was the one that predicted that Donald Trump was going to win Pennsylvania rather handily because everywhere she went in the state of Pennsylvania, outside the immediate areas of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, the place was covered with Trump signs. You didn't see a Hillary Clinton sign anywhere. Selena Zito actually made an effort to go out and learn who these Trump voters are. And she also pointed out something I pointed out, which is that Trump didn't cause this phenomenon. He became the symbol of it. And that's true. And for those of you uh, who think that weakens Trump's position in the future going forward, that he isn't the cause of the movement, uh, that uh, therefore there's no big reason to have him back, you're wrong. Every movement needs a leader. No one in the Republican Party or in the conservative um, landscape in the United States displayed the leadership qualities and personality and charisma that Donald Trump displayed. And unless someone comes by that can exceed him on those scores, he's going to be the candidate of choice um, for 2024. Um, The only other person, because of the job he's doing in the high-profile job that he has right now that might be able to approach that is Governor DeSantis in Florida, but I still think Trump wins that battle. Well, the state of Pennsylvania proved this past Tuesday that it's red. Let me read this little article by Selena Zito from the Epic Times. Voters in the Keystone State, as in Virginia, took Tuesday's election as an opportunity to rebut Democrats' overreach. Driven by the loudest voices in their national party towards issues of social justice, intersectionality, and, quote, climate justice, Democrats suffered for ignoring everyday issues such as inflation, crime, and education. With mail-in ballots still pending, Republicans are poised to sweep all four of Pennsylvania's statewide judicial elections. They also made gains in municipal races. In the Collar County surrounding Philadelphia, voters voters echoed the same dissatisfaction with Democrats that was displayed in the surprising results in neighboring New Jersey. 
This corrected some of the suburban losses that Republicans had experienced in Philly during the Trump years. In Bucks County, where Republicans have struggled to hold any local elected office in the last four years, they kept the district attorney's office in their column and picked up offices for sheriff and prothonotary. In Chester, where Republicans became extinct in row offices four years ago, the races were still too close to call. Here in Erie County, a critically important bellwether county for next year's high-profile races for state governorship in the U.S. House and Senate, voters chose the Republican candidate for county executive in a seat that has been held by Republicans only twice since 1978. Down in southwestern Pennsylvania, which has been trending rightward since Democrats started shedding working-class voters in favor of an elite ascendant coalition around 2010, Republicans swept most row offices in the collar counties that surround Allegheny County and Pittsburgh. Republicans were smart on candidate recruitment and localized rather than national messaging in places where they had lost elections in recent cycles, Bucks County especially. And I attribute that to the tremendous movement from liberal New York and New Jersey to that county. It's a very, very desirable county. This is me talking now, not the article. Um, for New Yorkers because of its proximity, where it's located. I've looked there myself, wanting to leave New York. And so that has affected the demographics in Bucks County. But even there, uh, where they've lost elections in recent years, Republicans did well. Republicans, now back to the article, dusted off some of their old-fashioned blocking and tackling moves and won races. Pennsylvania has been inching toward the GOP since former Vice President Al Gore carried it by four points in 2000. Three and a half points ahead of his national popular vote margin. Former President Barack Obama was only one point friendlier than his national margin in 2012. For Trump's victory in 2016, the Commonwealth finished just under three points more Republican than the national result. In 2020, although Joe Biden won, the margin in Pennsylvania was just over three points more Republican than Biden's national victory margin. That last result produced unexpected gains for Republicans in the state legislature in a year where Democrats had hoped to take over both houses. The article doesn't mention that I think former um, candidate John Kerry took Pennsylvania against George W. Bush in the re-election in 2004. But Pennsylvania has been lurching further and further to the right. And I think that's only going to continue. And if you get places like Bucks County going to the right, that's an indication that people are fed up. That sentiment carries over into the state of New Jersey. And there's more. Former GOP state party chairman Rob Gleason said Tuesday's results come as good news for Republicans, not just ahead of next year's big races, but also thinking ahead for 2024. There's a lot more in this article I could go on, uh, but I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. Um, let's see. The other interesting movement here in Pennsylvania is the surge in Republican voter registration in the state. Last year, just before Biden narrowly won the state, Democrats enjoyed a 700,000 plus advantage vis-a-vis Republicans in registration. Just before this past Tuesday's election, that number had dropped by nearly 100,000 voters. All of these trends show me that Republicans are on track for a solid night a year from now, in particular with the kinds of voters who responded positively to the Republican message. This is a diverse coalition. 
that I don't think people understand is strengthening. These voters are finding they have a lot more in common than they realized, and they voted together on common sense issues that affect all of their communities, and that is powerful. We're talking about people of minority stripes. We're talking about white-collar people, people who understand what is at stake and what is going on, that you can't have anything if you don't have order and you don't have uh, sort of stability in your society, and you have a government that knows how to restrain itself. So these people are coming together more and more in a coalition that cuts across um, economic lines, it cuts across racial lines, it cuts across social lines, and I don't think the Democrats understand it. In fact, some of them don't. I think some of them, though, do. One thing I've noticed, and I think you should look at it now, is that when the media tries to tell you that Republicans are out of touch, or that they try to push things that they want you to believe that people believe. This is nothing more than indoctrination. Say it enough and people will believe it. Build it and they will come. That sort of thinking. You saw this uh, when we did our show a few weeks ago about commercials in this country. I explained to you that of the 60-some-odd million married couples in this country, you had uh, over 50 some odd million couples that were white, white husband, white wife. You had another four million that were black, black husband, black wife. Another several million, almost two million that were Asian, Asian husband, Asian wife. And uh, a similar amount of Hispanics, uh, Hispanic husband, Hispanic wife. You add all that up and you find of the 60 some odd million, there are very few that are interracial couples. 300,000 black and white interracial couples, very few. Yet every commercial depicts an interracial couple. As if the media wants you to believe that this is what is the the norm here in the United States. Now, I have no problem if people want to marry interracially. That's certainly their business. But it would seem to me, as I said to that show, uh, if you're putting together marketing trends trying to sell to your customer, I don't see the commercial benefit in trying to depict a customer base that doesn't exist. How do you appeal to a market segment that doesn't exist? You can't sell the volume that you need to people that represent 1% of all married couples. It just doesn't make any sense. So there's something more going on here. There's an indoctrination. And they do this with social programs. They want you to believe that everyone is concerned about transgender rights. Yeah, all three of them. Nobody's concerned about these things. This is not what the primary concern people have. People have simple issues. How are they going to educate their kids? What are their kids being taught in school? How are they going to make their next buck? These are the things that concern people, not this nonsense that's going on. And so when you have a situation like that, that's when you see the left get desperate and start governing as if all of these things are true that people want. They are now governing against the will of the people just as they governed against the will of the people during the Obama years. Everybody wanted you to believe that everything Obama did was something that the country wanted. No, the Democratic Party never got more decimated than it did when Obama was president. They lost everything else because people don't want this. And Trump proved to them that we can have an America that is prosperous, We can have an America with lower taxes. We can have an America that doesn't have to depend on foreign energy, that we have our own energy, that we can even sell and export energy. In less than one year, 
an economy that was thriving has had a wrecking ball taken to it through the incompetence, not just the incompetence, but the deliberate malevolence of the Democratic leadership. The Democratic Party is a treasonous party. It is contemptuous of America. It is contemptuous of American exceptionalism. It is contemptuous of liberty. There's no other way to explain it. And you can't go by the stock market. The stock market is different. The stock market is speculative. It looks to the future. It looks to take positions that it can exploit um, based on what they think will happen in the future. That's not the same thing as saying the economy is doing well. People are hurting. Taxes are going up. Gas is going up. Gas is now three fifty-five a gallon here in New York. When Trump was president, it was $2 a gallon. And if you don't think that that's affecting everything, it does. It affects costs of material. It affects costs of food. It affects costs of lumber. It affects costs of everything because of the cost of transporting things. And so now what they're doing is there's this new socialism that they're trying to promote. In the aftermath of World War II, I was just listening to this today on the um, Lawrence, uh, Larry Kudlow show on WABC, uh, and Steve Forbes was speaking very intelligently about this as his guest. In the aftermath of World War II, most of Europe nationalized industries, steel industry, everything. Well, the new socialism that they're putting forth here is not doing that. It's, it's more evil. They're not nationalizing everything. They're going to continue to allow private ownership. But through bureaucracy, which I spoke about again a few weeks ago on this show, how much of this country is run by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who work for organizations that issue regulations which have the force of law and are not passed by Congress in any way, shape, or form. Bureaucratic control. They're going to control every aspect of every industry. And when those industries fail or have a problem, or when gas goes up because of stupidity, like closing the Keystone Pipeline, the politicians, uh, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Joe Bidens, dementia-ridden old fool that he is, they're not going to get the blame. They're not going to take the blame. They're going to blame it on the greedy oil industry. They're going to try and alienate people from corporate America, even though the root of the problem is the regulations coming out of Washington And they're going to try and hold themselves out as the heroes as they initiate further uh, regulations. And the latest folly is this Janet Yellen, who now thinks she wants to tax unrealized gains. Let me explain how this works. I want to leave you with this little tidbit. Investing is a way to provide for yourself when you're no longer able to work. How do we do it? We buy stock. We buy stock in public companies, equities. And the appreciation of these capital values bring us wealth. But the appreciation of capital values is transitory. You buy stock at $5 today. And six months from now, that stock is trading at $10. So you're $5 to the good. So I'll give you a hypothetical example, exactly what Janet Yellen wants to do and why you need to be on guard against these things and vote for people who are against these things. You bought 100 shares of stock at $5 a share. It cost you $500. Make it 1,000 shares. Make it 5,000, whatever you want to do. Six months from now, it's trading at $10. So that 100 shares of stock is now worth 1,000. 
You've just made yourself $500. But you've only made $500 if you cash out the stock at that time, if you sell it at $10. Because two weeks from now, that same stock could go down back to $5, or it could go down to $6, in which case your profit would be less. Janet Yellen proposes to tax you on the appreciation of the value of the stock even before you've cashed it out. Now, when do they do this? At what point in time do they decide to tax you on this? You cannot tax people on unrealized gains. The gains are not realized until you cash it out. That has been a hallmark of of investment uh, ethos since I was a child, since it began, since stocks first began. You can't tax people on the fact that their stock went up because it can go down tomorrow. It can go up today, it can go down tomorrow. You can tax people on interest on a bank account at the end of a year, of a fiscal year, because that's realized. And I suspect that that's what they're going to do. You buy stock on February 1st of 2021. And on December 31st, that stock has gone up from $5 to $10. So on December 31st, that's the value of the stock. And that's what they want to tax you on, even though you haven't sold the stock. And by January 31st of 2022, that stock is back down to $6. You still haven't sold it. So you sell it the next day and you've made exactly $1 on a share. But you paid tax as if you made $5 on a share. You tell me how that's fair. It's not. But the Democrats aren't about being fair. They're about increasing their power and turning America into a socialist country. We'll have more on it next week, but I thought I'd leave you with this on that Saturday. That's Saturday before the storm. The storm being, I don't know what's going to happen with that verdict in Wisconsin, but another excuse for riots. And you can be sure there'll be other riots in other cities we already have Black Lives Matter in New York, or this fellow that ostensibly speaks for Black Lives Matter, who the national organization has denounced, threatening the newly elected mayor, Eric Adams, saying that if he brings back law enforcement and undercover anti-gun units, it's going to be riot and bloodshed in New York City. To his credit, Adams is not about to be intimidated by this uh, punk who, because he's six foot six and smokes cigars, thinks he can go around and blow smoke in people's faces. Uh, and he's get, get away with it. He's going to quickly find that um, if you're dealing, if you're black and you're trying to play the race card, but you're trying to play it against the black mayor who's got a little balls and decides he's not going to tolerate your bullshit, uh, it doesn't work. And when that black mayor flexes his muscles and brings the police department to bear on you, it's pretty difficult for you to make your old tired arguments that it's racist. Good luck with that, though, Mr. Newsom. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>